Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone, gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul was on his journey, had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everyone. Can I add my welcome to that of Darren's? Good afternoon or good evening, good morning, wherever you're joining us on our live stream. Uh, So good to see you here today. Uh, Two quick things. Can I uh, reiterate, reaffirm, re-encourage, so to speak, what Darren has already encouraged you to do? Every member ministry. Uh, We're obviously dependent on our volunteers, on you to make our ministries here happen on a Sunday. But we also encourage you to be involved for your own spiritual good. Uh, God grows his people as God's people serve God's church. Um, You need to serve for your own spiritual growth. So can I encourage you, as Darren already has, to uh, prayerfully consider how you can get involved in in whatever area, in St Andrews and outside of St Andrews, that the Lord is calling you towards. Second thing, uh, this evening um, I'm taking a group of 23 people from St Andrews off to a tour of Greece and Turkey. We're following Paul's missionary journeys. Um, And then I'm taking an extra two weeks off uh, with my son uh, before we pack him off to university in Australia. Um, I'll be gone for four Sundays. Uh, And during those four Sundays, obviously, uh, Darren and and, and the rest of the staff will make ministry happen as normal. You'll also get uh, a couple of preachers that you don't often uh, see, uh, Hiyu Han and Lucas Durrant there, the pastors from our two daughter churches at Chartin Church and Resurrection Church. Uh, you'll also be hearing from them over the next uh, four Sundays. Uh, look forward to that. Okay, enough of announcements. How about I pray for us as we come to think about this passage? 
Uh, Lord God, uh, we recognise that we're distractible people. Um, we're prone to losing attention. Our hearts are prone to wandering. Without you, we're unable really even to please you. So would you guide the thoughts of our hearts, Lord, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, as we look at the story of the early church, as we, we hear about how your gospel spread, uh, how it transformed communities that aren't too different from our communities here today, and how you used people who aren't really different from us. So guide us and direct us, Lord, help us to see Jesus more clearly and to follow him more closely. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Um, I have been concussed a few times in my life playing sport. <laughs> uh, the first time when, uh, was when I was at high school. Uh, I was about 16 years old. And with another, I think, 10 group of guys, uh, we started playing a game of touch rugby. But that 10 group of guys grew to 40, and touch rugby turned into tackle rugby. Um, I don't exactly remember how it happened, but I was told later on that along with half a dozen other guys, I went up to catch a high ball. I caught it. And in the ensuing melee, I was the last to get up. Um, I wasn't unconscious, but there's just half an hour of that afternoon that I, that I do not remember. <laughs> my mates took care of me. Uh, they, they brought me along to my maths class. Uh, they tried to keep me away from the attention of teachers. But eventually, my condition was discovered. Um, one of my teachers noticed I was more vague and bemused than normal, and I was sent off to the school nurse. And there, the school nurse asked me some direct questions. Who are you? What are you doing here? Where do you live? Now, she wasn't being rude. She was checking my vital signs. She was, she was checking uh, my health. And so it is with us. As a body, we need to continually check our vital signs. We need, we need to figure out, are we a fit and healthy spiritual community? As you know, we're in a series looking at the book of Acts, which is all about the growth of the early church and the spread of the gospel. And at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That verse, we know, is kind of like the contents page for the whole book, as Jesus' disciples are obedient to his command. Like a stone thrown into a clear pond, the gospel ripples outwards, beginning at Jerusalem. And then in today's passage... At the very end, in verse 31, we're given like a status update. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. The ripples of the ponds had been spreading outwards from Jerusalem to Judea, Galilee, Samaria. Uh, this status update, in many respects, is a health update as well. We're told about the vital signs. We're told about the health of the church, that it was, for instance, at peace. That didn't mean it was without difficulties, but it was at peace within itself, uh, that it was living in the fear of the Lord. That meant they were pursuing obedience and holiness to God. They were being encouraged by the Holy Spirit. There was this deep sense of intimacy with God, seeking the presence of Jesus, and, and, and they were growing in numbers. The world around them was watching and they sat up and paid attention. They began to ask questions and they heard the gospel and many more people became Christians. These were the vital signs of, of a fit and healthy church. But the question is for us, 
How did they get there? How did, how did that all happen? Uh, what makes for a healthy Christian community? What makes for us being a healthy Christian community? Many years ago uh, in, in Australia, I heard a well-known pastor and author say that if you want to grow a big church, it's actually not very complicated. First of all, uh, make sure you have a really good Sunday school. So, so parents can just drop off their kids, dump their kids and escape. Um, make sure you have a really good music ministry, professional, impressive, great tech, AV, all of that type of stuff. Make sure you have a big car park or you, you're close to public transportation. Make it easy for people to get to you. And then, and then make sure you have a good cafe, um, lots of food to attract young people, especially university students, good food. And then in your sermons, don't talk about anything uncomfortable. Don't talk about sin. And then, and then don't ask too much of people. Don't badger them to get involved too much. This pastor said, you do all of that and you'll get a big church. Um, now the thing is, we don't see any of those things talked about in the book of Acts. None of it. And so we're left with the question, well, well how indeed do we make for a fit and healthy church? How do we spread the gospel? Well, this passage today gives us a few clues. You might remember last week we saw the story of the conversion of Saul. This week's passage tells us what happens afterwards, the beginning of Saul's ministry in Damascus and Jerusalem, which culminates in this summary verse, verse 31, this status update. And, and, and we see not just the marks of a healthy church, but a hint in this passage of what Saul's ministry will look like. You might remember when, when, when God appeared to Ananias and told him to go and see Saul, in verse 15, God said to him, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What are the two characteristics for, for Saul's ministry? Indeed, what are the two characteristics that we see in this passage for the ministry of a healthy church? Well, it's proclamation of the name of the Lord and it's suffering in the name of the Lord. They're the two authentic markers of gospel ministry. And they're also our two points today as we look more deeply at this passage. So first of all, the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. Uh, verse 13, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, as soon as he's converted, Spall, Spall, Saul spends time in Damascus. Now that rather vague reference to several days, actually we're told by Paul in Galatians 1 that it was about three years. Saul spent three years in the area of Arabia and right at the northern end of Arabia is Damascus. And straight away we're told that Saul begins to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And the same thing happens in Jerusalem. Verse 28, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, let me just take a sidebar, a pause uh, for a moment. Think about the surprise that this would have been to everybody. Saul turns from being a persecutor to a preacher. He turns from trying to destroy the church, to destroy Christians, to making Christians. This surprise would have, would have been equal in both Damascus and, and Jerusalem because they knew who Saul was. 
Uh, Luke tells us that in Jerusalem, Saul tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. These Christians in, in Jerusalem had been personally hurt by Saul. They could all tell stories about how Saul had harassed them, threatened them, intimidated them, abused them, dragged them off into, into prison. And, and the Christians in Damascus would have had the same fear. Once they heard that Saul was coming and, and, and then that, that Saul was now a Christian, they couldn't believe it. They would have said, well, we fled Jerusalem trying to escape from this guy. How can he be a Christian? How can he be talking to people about Jesus? That is just impossible. And so how was it then that it was possible for, for this guy, whom people feared, who, who had such a reputation, to be accepted into these Christian communities? Well, it was because of the work of, of two men. In Damascus, it was Ananias. Ananias was the guy that God spoke to and said, go and see Saul. Ananias was the guy who said to God, hang on, this guy has been trying to kill Christians. He might kill me. But Ananias overcame his fears. He was the guy who prayed with Saul, baptized Saul, welcomed Saul, connected Saul into the rest of the church at Damascus. In Jerusalem, it was Barnabas. Everyone else was scared, but he was the guy who did the uncomfortable thing. He, he was the guy that took the initiative to connect with Saul, to welcome Saul, to vouch for Saul to the rest of the church so the rest of the church would welcome him. God uses his people to connect other people with God's people, people who overcome their suspicions and scruples, people who show gospel warmth and welcome to others. Churches need the Ananiases and Barnabases. We need them, the glue people who connect people together. Uh, people who instead of walking down and looking at a row of seats or, or walking down a corridor at the office, at work, looking at that office, instead of saying, well, there's someone I don't like the look of, they say, there's someone who I want to connect with. There's someone who I want to have a friendship with. There's someone who I want to help connect with Jesus. We need glue people. Are, are you a, a, a glue person? Okay, close the sidebar, end of that one. Notice something about how Paul proclaims the Lord. Well, verse 20. Saul preached that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 22. He proved that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, the gospel has a clear content. Now, we're told that all the way through this passage, Saul is preaching to, to Jewish people in synagogues, in Jerusalem and in Damascus. And no doubt he would have been opening up the Old Testament with them. And as he did so, and as he shared the gospel, as he shared his story, they would have been offended. They would have been offended for at least two reasons. First of all, Saul was preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, in the ancient pagan world, Romans and Greeks didn't have as much difficulty believing that the divine could become human. That wasn't a huge issue for them. But the Jewish people were the last people on earth to believe that God could become human, that we could worship a human as God. For them, it was absolutely scandalous and offensive. But then secondly, as Saul began to share the gospel and share something of his own story... It would have looked like, I think, something like this. 
He would have said to them, listen, I'm a Jew, like you. I I, I was taught under Gamaliel. I, I became thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. And I'm just as diligent, just as zealous as you are to strictly follow the law of God. I'm just as concerned about purity and cleanliness. We must be pure before God. We must be clean before God. But then he would have gotten to the part where he came to believe in Jesus and he was baptised and his Jewish audience would have been absolutely offended. Why? Well, Christians, of course, we we believe that water baptism represents, it represents, it symbolises the washing away of our sins. That, 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 that through Jesus, we are forgiven by God. It, what hap- it represents, baptism represents what happens when we believe in Christ. Jesus' blood atones for our sins and we are forgiven. Now, even, even the Jewish people understood that baptism represents cleansing so that you can be acceptable before God. But the Jews only did baptism to Gentile converts. It was only the Gentile converts who wanted to believe in the God of Israel who were baptised. The Jews would say, fine, if you want to believe in the God of Israel, wonderful, you've got to get baptised because you, you haven't been following the law of God. That's why they had to do it. If, if they were, as far as the Jews were concerned, the Gentiles were the unclean, unholy dogs. So if they wanted to believe in the God of Israel, wonderful. But because they hadn't been following the laws of the God of Israel, they were unclean. They had to be be baptised. But then Saul comes along, and in this part of the story, he, a Jew, would have said, listen, I've I've gotten baptised, which means he's saying to them, those of you who, who, who are born Jewish and are zealous for the law of God... You are just as unclean, you are just as defiled, you are just as lost as the dirty, unwashed pagans. You you all need saving, just regardless of whether you're a moral, law-believing Jew or a dirty, unwashed pagan. We're all in need of saving and God has done the work in saving us. He sent His Son, Jesus, the Messiah, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now that message would have been absolutely offensive to Saul's Jewish audience. And it's still offensive to people today. Because the Gospel tells you that you are every bit as lost as the morally dysfunctional person that you look down upon in your community. You are every bit as lost, but that in Jesus Christ, you are every bit as loved as Jesus himself. You are every bit as accepted. On the one hand, the gospel humbles you down into the ground because it tells you that you are a sinner in need of grace. You can't do anything to save yourself. But then on the other hand, the gospel lifts you up to heaven because it tells you the extent of God's love for you that he would send his own son to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Now, do you see the point of where I'm getting? Saul's preaching had content. The gospel has content. It has a message. Now, often when Christians try to share the gospel with others, uh, when they try to share their faith with others, when they try to share their testimony, their story, they'll say something like this. "Um, Jesus has really helped me deal with my anxiety, uh, deal with my stresses. I have so much more peace in life. Or they might say, uh, you know, Jesus has has just given me so much purpose. My life is more functional. He helps me to, to make these decisions in life. 
you know, things are just so much better for me. You know, all those things might be true, that's great. But we need to remember there is specific content to the gospel. The gospel is not about you, it's about Jesus. And so when we share the gospel with others, we share Jesus with others, who he is and what he has done. The gospel is not about us, it's about Jesus. And so if you're here today and and, and you're working out Christianity, you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, don't believe in Jesus because he'll help you deal with your stress and give you peace in life, even though he will. Don't believe in Jesus even though he'll make your life more functional, even though he will. Don't believe in Jesus even though he gives you an incredible sense of purpose and helps you through those difficult times in life. Don't believe in that all because of those things, even though he will do that. Believe in him because he is God himself who has come into our mess for us. Believe in him because he went to the cross for you, to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Believe in him because he conquered death and in so doing gives you eternal life. Believe in him because he's true and the gospel is the best news you could ever hear. So the first mark of authentic gospel ministry is the proclamation of Jesus as Lord. But the second mark that we see in this passage is suffering in the name of the Lord. Uh, Do you see that as soon as Saul began preaching Jesus, he was persecuted for Jesus. Saul the persecutor became Saul the persecuted. And so in Damascus in verse 23, after many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But the followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the opening in the wall. And the same thing happens in uh, Jerusalem in verse 29. Um, As Saul talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, they tried to kill him. Uh, When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Remember, Jesus had warned Saul that Saul would suffer because of the name of the Lord. And as soon as Saul begins preaching Jesus, he gets persecuted because of Jesus. Gospel proclamation becomes gospel persecution. Now the thing is, what happened in in Damascus and and, and Jerusalem was only just the beginning of of Saul's troubles. Uh, Paul, Saul, Paul seemed to have an unusual amount of things go wrong in his life. Paul seemed to have an excessive number of tragedies and troubles and difficulties in life. In 2 Corinthians 11, it seems as though people are talking about all these troubles. And so he goes ahead and lists them in this famous passage. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've laboured and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? It's just exhausting reading all that. And then at the end of chapter 11, he finishes it by going back to that incident in Damascus. We had to flee from the city and he was lowered from the walls in a basket at night. You know, in the ancient world, the hero was the invading soldier who was first over the wall in a siege. 
He was the hero. He got the medal from his king. He got all the glory and honour. That's not what happens to Saul. When Saul looks back at this incident, he doesn't look back at being lowered down a wall in a basket at night as being the victory of the strong but the escape of the weak. He doesn't look at this with any honour but with shame. Now, a lot of people would have looked at Paul's life and they would have thought, you know, how could God be with a man when all this terrible stuff happens to him? If God is with you, he's meant to protect you, not harm you. If God is with you, he's meant to prosper you. You can imagine someone in Corinth thinking, listen, I've traveled the Mediterranean all my life. I've never been shipwrecked. Saul has been shipwrecked three times. You know, what's happening to him? Saul if God is with you, Saul, if you're, you're meant to be an apostle, this shouldn't be happening to you. But here's the thing. If God is sovereign, if God is in control of all things, he could have prevented all that from happening, right? He could have prevented all the persecution. He could have prevented all the beatings, all the hardships, all the shipwrecks, all the troubles, all the tragedies. He could have prevented all that happening to Saul, but he didn't. Why not? Saul gives us a clue in the next chapter when he talks about something called a thorn in the flesh, this affliction. Now, we don't exactly know what that thorn in the flesh is. It could be a debilitating physical illness. Uh, It could be a battle with mental health. It could be a difficult relationship. It could be this traumatic uh, 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 experience that he's gone through that just gives him like PTSD or something. We just don't know what it is. Paul tells us that he prayed three times for the Lord to remove this from him, but the Lord didn't. Instead, Jesus says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. That means that in our weakness, God's power is more clearly seen. In our weakness, we learn to depend more on God to lean more on Jesus. In our weakness, when we are at the very end of our strength, we then more clearly see that Jesus is alone, alone sufficient. And therefore, he is the one who, who makes everything happen. He has to make everything happen. And, and therefore, we, we learn to give him all the glory. You know, that's how God works. That's how God always works. All the way through the Bible, that's how he's always worked. I mean, you go to the book of Judges, when God tells Gideon to go off to war. Gideon has raised up an army of 22,000 people, and yet God tells him to scale it down to 300. Why? So that everyone would know that it's through God alone that the victory has come. Or you go to further on in the story of Israel, when they're being attacked by the Philistines, and they're being confronted by this huge giant called Goliath. How will the victory come? Well, it's just through David through this shepherd boy who's, who doesn't have any armour. So that people know it's God alone who brings the victory. Or what about our greatest enemy, the greatest battle that we have against sin and death? How will the victory come? Well, it comes through a man who is abused and rejected, humiliated, abandoned and, and crucified. It comes through Jesus in weakness So that people know that salvation comes entirely through the Lord's. Look, Paul Paul didn't respond to all this suffering by saying, well, God is with me despite all that. 
No, no, he, go, he goes further. He says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul's suffering, his weakness, was not a denial of the gospel. It was a confirmation of the gospel. Because God works in weakness, not only in bringing salvation, but God also works in weakness through proclaiming salvation. Gospel proclamation always goes hand in hand with gospel suffering. Always. The gospel always goes forward when people realize their weaknesses and dependence on God. It always goes forward through hardship. When we learn to get on our knees and pray to God and trust in His power and not in our own power. God doesn't spread His gospel through the competency of His people, through their intelligence or their attractiveness, through their, 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 their articulated preaching. It always goes forward through the power of the Spirit as the Spirit brings the gospel into bear on God's people. It always happens through His sufficiency. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, when you go through those you know, re- really difficult things in life, when you feel as though you have what Paul calls a thorn in the flesh, how do you deal with it? Because I think you have three options, right? One, you can basically make life all about getting rid of that thorn, right? You try to plough on in other areas of life, your work, your family life, but you just really become obsessed about getting rid of that thorn. You do everything you can about getting rid of that thorn. Two, you can let that thorn derail you. It derails your life. It saps all the joy out of your life. It, it, It affects all your relationships until eventually you get to the point where you leave God. You've had, you, you, you stop believing in God. Or three, instead of letting it become your obsession or letting it derail you, you can use that thorn to teach you to become more dependent on Jesus, to lean in more on Jesus, to become more joyful because of Jesus. You can use that thorn to praise Jesus more and then in so doing proclaim Jesus more because Jesus says to you my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness you know it seems counterintuitive but that's how the gospel goes forward it goes forward in weakness you know you might very often think how can God use me you you think to yourself you know I feel ill-equipped I don't feel like I have all the answers to people's questions therefore I'm not going to try or you feel as though you know you you're not a really good example of Christianity. You feel the burden of your failures. Or you feel unimportant or unattractive or unimpressive or weak or weary or wounded or burdened. And you wonder, how can God work through you? But God works through you when you are dependent upon Him because His grace is sufficient for you. God always works for you when you are dependent upon Him. Look, these are the two marks of authentic gospel ministry. We see them in the life of Paul. We see them in the life of the early church. And we see them in every spiritually healthy community. Gospel proclamation, gospel suffering, all in the name of Jesus.
And this is what we have to embrace if we want to be a, a, a healthy spiritual community. But let me just ask you personally a question more specifically. How do you think you're going? Are you fit and healthy spiritually? Um, last week I was reading an article uh, about a term called quiet quitting. It's a term that started to be used a lot by commentators in, in the US. Um, you might have heard of the phrase, the great resignation, right? It's been used a lot in Hong Kong over the last year or two. The great resignation, people resigning from their jobs uh, because of the high stress, the high work hours, the high demands, the effects of the pandemic, uh, political polarization, the great resignation. Quiet quitting is not you resigning from your job. Instead, quiet quitting is you not going above and beyond for your job. You're still performing the basic tasks of your job, but you're doing the bare minimum. You know, you're not giving yourself, you're not giving your all for your job because you just don't think your job is worth it. You've, you're quite quitting, you're disengaged. And let me tell you, there is a great temptation to do that in the Christian life. You know, you still believe you still turn up, but you're not engaged. You, 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 you quiet quit. You don't get involved. You, you put limits on what you're going to do. You, do. you don't want to get involved. You don't want to serve. You don't want to give it your all. You quiet quit. Now, maybe you do that because, you know, you feel jaded by life. Or maybe you do that because um, you don't want to be moved out of your comfort zone. You don't want to feel as though you're weak. Um, maybe you do it because you, you don't want to be asked too much. Maybe you do it because you're trying to negotiate with God. God, you can have this, but you can't have that. And so you disengage, you quite quit. You become like that third soil. Remember in Jesus' parable? The one that was growing, but then it became choked by the concerns and the worries and anxieties of this world. It got choked and choked, and choked until it died. Is that you? Have you quiet quit? Spiritual health comes when we proclaim the name of the Lord, even though we will suffer for the name of the Lord. And so we give it all we've got. We've given it all we've got because of the one who was weak for us. We give it all we've got because of the one who has given everything for us and went to the cross on our behalf. We give it all we've got until that moment that we see him face to face and we hear those wonderful words from him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Until that moment, give it all you've got. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we can't help but feel uh, intimidated, um, overwhelmed, maybe burdened um, by your word, by the example of Saul, by the example of the early church, people who were so focused on proclaiming Jesus that they went through great hardship to do it. And we know that they did it because they were moved by Jesus, enamored by Jesus, besotted with him, that they wanted to live their lives for his praise and glory. Uh, Lord God, we, we want to confess our own shortcomings. Um, we always do a cost-benefit analysis with you. Um, we don't want to move out of our comfort zone. Uh, we want to negotiate with you. In many respects, we might quite quit. 
but Lord, would you help us uh, by your Spirit to use uh, what you have given us in the time that you've given us? Lord, we want to thank you for every opportunity you give us as a community to serve, to serve one another, to serve our community. We want to thank you for all the ways in which you provide for us. And we want to thank you that you, you use us. Um, and so, Lord, guide and direct us. For those people, who, for people here who are searching, who, who are maybe a bit numb to you, who are looking at the, the distractions and the, the offers of life, um, Lord, would you convict them that Jesus alone is sufficient? Jesus alone is sufficient now, in this lifetime and the next. And nothing can give us joy and peace and purpose except for Jesus. Lord, strengthen us by your spirit. We need, we need your help to be the people that you want us to be. So we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.